Well, I'm going to stop talking. Um, I've, I've been blessed in my life to have quite a few amazing spiritual fathers. And today you're going to get to hear from one of them. And he's, he preached a different message in Metairie than he's preaching this morning. But if his message here is as good as the one he preached in Metairie, get your pen or your phone out and take some notes because it was fantastic. Um, I, also, I had him raise the table for you because that table in Metairie was set for me and it, it was a little short for you. So, will y'all do me a favor and please welcome Pastor Keith. You coming up with him, Miss Penny? Not up there. All right. Uh, would you welcome the head of Network of Related Pastors, Pastor Keith Tusi, and his lovely wife, Penny? Good morning. It's so nice to be with you all. I don't get to travel very much, but I got to know some of you ladies at the women's conference we had. That was last year, I guess. Was that last year? But it was so great to get to know you a little bit. And I'm pleased to see what God is doing in your midst here, too. It's an honor to be here. And I just want to reinforce that God is really asking us to trade our hopelessness for hope. I just felt like he wanted me to even encourage you a little bit further. He can't do that for you. But do you know that the greatest thing that pleases God in your entire life is when you take him at his word and believe him? And you trade whatever you're dealing with for what his word promises you. There's nothing that will please God more than for you to say, you are who you say you are in my life. And I'm trading this hopelessness that I'm carrying right now for hope because you are able. So just great to be with you. Amen. Up this way. There was a day I could have probably jumped up there, but today's not that day. Hallelujah. You'd be laying hands on me if I tried that, probably. Good morning. Good to see you. I can see you. Hallelujah. A little bit of glare, huh? <laughs> good deal. We did have a good time in Metairie this morning. God was very faithful, as he always is. It's uh, good to be here. We have a great connection with this church. You know, you're part of NRP, the Network Related Pastors, a vital member of that. And, of course, we love uh, Pastor Chris and Caitlin and are thrilled to be connected with them and the leadership team. I want to give a special shout-out to Jason and Melanie, too, who took on the mantle of leading the NRP youth conferences and really helping them with them. Thank them for that. Amen. We had great, great fruit. And uh, they, they, are, they are highly esteemed and, and greatly appreciated. So we, we appreciate your, your involvement in serving other churches. I want to go to uh, the sixth chapter of the book of Acts today. I'm going to read over a text you've probably heard before, and I think it's one of those things we kind of get so familiar with we might actually miss the point of. So I want to drill down a little bit with you this morning and talk about how that affects us. Before we go there, there's something in my heart. I just, uh, you know, this whole building situation with you guys, uh, it's near and dear to a lot of people that are praying for you. But I just, let's just be in agreement this morning, amen. I, I, I want to encourage you to stay engaged. Uh, listen, we are not at the mercy of an insurance company. Do you understand that? They may think that. I don't think that. We have favor of God. We've got a mission from God. We've got an eternal responsibility that God has given. And I just proclaim favor in the name of Jesus. That even during this season, there will be great fruit. And the end result of this thing will be better than anything we could have humanly orchestrated in Jesus' name. I'm going to count the three. If you are in agreement, say amen. One, two, three. Amen. 
Please stay engaged, okay, in the name of Jesus. So let's go to Acts, the sixth chapter, and, and I, I want to just echo what Pastor Chris said about Band of Brothers. Listen, we got a great lineup. I can't wait for Band of Brothers this year. We're talking about being overcomers. We got a whole list of overcoming subjects. We got uh, four workshops that are going to run, a total of, I guess, 24 workshops that will be going on, plus the main sessions, just great fellowship, wonderful, wonderful stuff happening. But let's go to Acts 6, and we're going to read the first six verses, okay? Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Just keep one with me, clear to verse 7. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Mercurius, and Nicor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Lord, we thank you for the entrance of your word that gives light. We thank you for the inspired word of God that tells us not just what you want to do, but how you want to do it in Jesus' name. Verse 7 does not exist in a vacuum. Verse 7 is related to the first six verses here that the word of God kept on spreading and many were obedient to the faith. And so I want to walk us through this and see if we can stir up in us some of the understanding that they had. Now this passage is a great history and a great heritage for us. And almost any denomination, any Christian movement of some sort they look at Acts 6 and try to replicate that structure to some degree on how to apply that to increase the reach of the gospel and how to be a functional church. And what we've got to realize is, like, when you read the book of Acts, you know, that's a 30-year period. There's 28 chapters condensed into 30 years. So we kind of think, well, this is all happening in a week, Right. But there's probably, this is probably three to six years in after the day of Pentecost that we're reading Acts 6. They're still focused in Jerusalem. There's still a lot of things that are going on, but God is getting ready to launch them. After Acts 6, the gospel goes way beyond Jerusalem and takes on a more mission focus than just a ministry focus. So there's some things we really have to learn here to get a hold of it. Now it says, the first thing it says here is in verse 1, at this time. So the Lord is giving us a time context. So what happened before this, at this time? Well, in Acts 5, we have one of the greatest church growth strategies ever introduced. God striking people dead in the church. 
Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody preaches about that. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They got struck dead, okay? Pretty serious, right? Pretty serious about the sacred nature of the church, amen? In chapter 4, the leaders are thrown in jail. Every church wants to go to, everybody wants to go to church where the leaders are in jail, right? And, you know, and then angels show up to get them out. So I want you to think about this. Now, I'm not, I'm not the brightest tool in the shed, okay? But if I'm part of a church where people are literally dying for lying and the leaders are in jail, I don't think I'm going to complain about the food. Are you with me? I think there's a lot of other things. I'm just going to kind of zip it and say, I think I'll just go with the flow here. Whatever they want to give me a little crumb off the table, I'll take it. But you know what this proves? You know what this proves? This proves people are people, right? You know, I, I get to travel all the United States and, and other nations, and I, there's always people that want to tell me how unique their people is, and I don't buy it. You know what? You is the same people I got at home. We, we, are the, we are so much alike, yet we are so different. Let me give you an illustration. So we're in the Ukraine. We're in the city of Azum this past March, okay? And uh, this city is tragic. I mean, there are people buried in people's yards. The city is blown up. Everything is destroyed. As we're walking down the street, we're walking on spent cartridges of shells that have been fired. We're planting a church there. We're dragging ammunition boxes, Russian ammunition boxes that were left behind when the Ukrainian army pushed them back. And that's what we're using for pews, okay? And so we got a whole convoy of vans lined up, loaded with food. And we've got, a, we got one van loaded with where they're just going to cook hot rice and throw some meat in it to flavor to give people a hot meal. We've got a sound system set up. We've got a worship team set up. We've got a 16-member medical team, three doctors, a PA, several, uh, you know, uh, emergency workers and nurses. And, I mean, we, we had a whole operation set up to plant this church, to launch this church. And we've got a bread truck, okay? And what we've got is we've literally got a truck that's loaded with fresh braid bread. I mean, it's not in wrappers. Are you with me? And this bread's been handled by human hands. Let me just say this. And so they're passing out bread. I mean, we, ride, we show up. There are lines of people, Right? And so they're passing out the bread, and I'm just standing back, like, watching this. My heart is overcome with what I'm seeing, right? And I'm watching them pass out the bread, and sure enough, there's a lady who gets up in line, and they hand her a loaf of bread. You know, it's going through a little assembly line. About three guys touch it before it gets to her. They hand her this loaf of bread, no wrapper, and she looks at it, and she squeezes a little bit, hands it back, and points to another loaf of bread. And I'm, I wanted to laugh out loud. I thought, people are people, right? I mean, I mean, in the midst of all this chaos, this lady, as if there's a difference between one of these loaves of bread, you know, aren't people interesting? Aren't people amazing? Hallelujah. But people are people, okay? And I don't know what, she, you know, she found. It was probably just her thing, like, to want to pick the best melon she could find. But, you know, I'm just telling you, I'm not getting, getting in a food fight when the Holy Spirit's moving. Are you with me? And sometimes, not sometimes, but often the enemy will try to distract us. Our flesh will distract us and our culture will try to distract us from what's really, really being important. Now it talks here about the Hellenistic Jews and the Greek Jews. They were one faith 
with two cultures. The Hellenistic Jews were people that had been persecuted as Jewish people and had left the area under Roman domination. They were Greek. They spoke Greek. They ate Greek food. They had Greek culture. But now revival has taken place, and over these five or six years that have happened now, they've reassembled in Jerusalem. They're becoming a tribe, but they still have their different cultures, and there's some kind of friction between them. Now, if you read this chapter quickly, you think that's the problem that this chapter addresses, and it's not. It's a symptom of what this chapter addresses. And so these people are wrestling through, you know, really a little bit of cultural conflict. Here's what I found out in years of church leadership and leading churches, planting churches, and all the crazy things that we've done in the name of Jesus. Most church problems are not about key issues like doctrine and vision. You know what they are? They're food fights. They're like, this is how we like our potatoes. And we think the way we eat potatoes ought to be the way everybody eats potatoes. In other words, it's usually not what we're doing, but it's, and not even why we're doing it, but it's how we're doing it. Okay? Now, this is really interesting because we've got, we got to separate this thing. Think about this for a second. What is one of, I would say, the most important thing we do as a church? What would you say is the most important thing we do as a church? Go ahead, say it. Worship. That's our first responsibility, and it's our first privilege as believers to worship. If we came together today and worshiped, and that's all we did, we would have accomplished something because that's our purpose. If we didn't have a building, if we were in jail, if we were being persecuted, if we were in the White House rotunda, it didn't matter where we're at, worship is the same. Amen? And that's what we do. Now, how we do worship, listen for this, is culture. Do you understand that? You go to different churches. In NRP, uh, I think we share the same values, but our culture would be different. Okay, so what these people are fighting over is a Hellenistic hamburger or a Hebrew hamburger. This is how I like it. This is what I want done. And we can get weird about those things. Are you with me? So we've got, I'll give you an illustration. So years ago when we were going into the Soviet Union in the, in the early and mid-80s, we had developed some really good friendships with people in the Scandinavian countries like Finland, Sweden, and uh, Norway and places like that that we were using as launching pads. And so one of my friends, John, and his wife were Finnish believers in a Finnish church there. And he was getting ready to go to the mountains of Colombia, to the Indian tribes of Colombia, to be a missionary from Finland. And so I'm staying in his little apartment as we're ready to go into the Soviet Union in the morning. And uh, he's recording this music. And I said, John, I said, what are you doing? Like, he said, oh, I'm going to take this and I'm going to teach this to the Indians in the mountain of Columbia. I said, John, you can't take this music there. Now listen, like Norwegian and Swedish are very light languages. They're like sing-songy. You know, they're very light. Finnish is the opposite. It's a very unique dialect in all the world okay one of the most unique dialects and it's very heavy it's like it's like a dirge like when you go and you worship you would not know the people were happy if you just took your culture in there honestly the first time I was in a finished worship service I thought I was at a funeral and they were thrilled okay it, and I, so we sat up through the night, and I'm trying to explain to him, look, you could take the words, you could take the values, but that's not their culture. You can't communicate like that with them. Are you with me? 
And so what happens is God is trying to build a culture, and a lot of times we're coming into something and saying, that's not the way we like our potatoes, okay? That, that's not the way we like this done. You know, we have a Spanish-speaking church, an NRP in Pittsburgh, that we're very close with, and, and they're booming, they're growing, they've just outgrown their second building, and they have, I think right now, 16 different nations represented in that church that all speak the same language. And you know what's amazing? They all come with a different worship culture, and they all want to do it their way. And Pastor Frank is funny. He says all the time, we are not a multicultural church. We are a multi-ethnic church. We have one culture. It's a kingdom culture. That's what we're building in Jesus' name. Amen. A kingdom culture based on doctrine, based on values, based on mission, based on truth. And we can't do it everybody's way. It's not that one way is necessarily better than another way. But you can only do things so many ways. Are you with me? Like NRP, you know, we're a little over 50 churches now, and Pastor Chris graciously helps us with worship, you know. And, and brother, brother Carl described Chris one time as a musical note a person grew around. Now, me, on the other hand, I play the radio. <laughs> and I'm tone deaf, literally. I mean, I had my earring tested. The guy said, you hear one noise out of one ear, and you have volume, no volume. He said, you literally hear one tone out of one ear and other tone out of another. I said, I have a unique gift. What can I say? So here's me. I'm a worshiper, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a worshiper, but I'm not a youth person. And I'm working with a guy who knows everything about music, and he's got to listen to me, listen to this, say, this is how I want worship to happen. That takes some humility. Because what I know is when we get 50 churches together, we can't do it everybody's way. What we do is important, and who we do it to is supreme. How we do it is we got to take one flow and jump in that flow. Are you with me? And I think if we could understand this, that we come with like cultural prejudice, not just the big things about worship to other things, it's really important. I remember one time when I was pastoring, a guy was walking out the door and uh, he said to me, oh, I really, he was a guest, he said, oh, I really like the service. But that one song we liked, we sang, I, I didn't like that song. I said, don't worry about it, your name wasn't in it. Isn't it, isn't it really significant that we would be so off base that we would think worship was designed to please us. I'm not saying we don't get a mutual benefit out of it. I, I'm not suggesting that. But that's not the root of it. That's not the cause of it. That's not the focus of it. It's to, it's to, it's to make the devil jealous. It's to glorify God. Amen. It's to rejoice in the Lord our Savior. Amen. And, and just enjoy that whole presence. Now, let's look at this second verse here, okay? Let's go there. Or let's go back to verse 1. I'm sorry. Let's go back to verse 1 for a minute. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. You know what's interesting in this chapter? If you read the whole chapter, we're assuming that they had a legitimate complaint. But there's nowhere where it really says they had a legitimate complaint. They may have. They probably did. I'm not saying they didn't. But it really doesn't drill down on that because that's not the problem. Okay? And you know, matter of fact, what it says, it says this. Because they were overlooked. I want you to think about that. Is overlooked a fact or a feeling? Let me ask you that question. How many of you love to go somewhere where you know you'll be overlooked? Let's go to that meeting. I just feel so overlooked and insignificant when we get there. No one wants to do that, right? So I think when we come together, 
There should be something in us. There should be such a spirit of hospitality and embracing that people feel like they are a part of what's happening. They're not, they're not at somebody else's family reunion watching what is going on. Amen? Remember the story of Hagar in uh, Genesis 16 where she's an outcast and she's by herself and she's nowhere to go. She uses an Hebrew word. She talks about God as, as Elohim Salam. You know what it means? The God who sees. The God who sees. When you're in the presence of God, you know you're not overlooked. And sometimes, I'm just going to say this to you. Sometimes we have personal issues, even in the church, that are personal issues that we try to make corporate. Because there's something in us that we have to deal with so that we're not feeling overlooked. Amen? So I'm not saying you're wrong for feeling that. I'm just saying you're wrong maybe for making a conclusion sometime that it's somebody else's fault, but that God wants to bring you into a place where you know that you belong to him. You know that he's smiling on you. You know you have security in your own walk with the Lord, and that thing is not being happening. Now, maybe they, you know, maybe they weren't getting their portion of food. Maybe it wasn't done to their taste. Maybe they were speaking in Hebrew and they said 9 o'clock and the Greeks thought they meant 8 o'clock and they, they came earlier. They came. I don't know. Who know. It doesn't give us the details because that's not the problem here. The problem is in the next verse and the solution is in the next verse. This is a symptom. Now look at verse 2, what he says here. So when the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples, he said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. Let me ask you a question. What was the problem here? The problem was that the leaders were neglecting the word of God by serving tables. Now in NRP, and in certainly in this church, the culture you have with Brother Carl and Brother Chris and other great men and women of God, is there's nobody, there's no prima donnas in this bunch. We're not a crowd of prima donnas. We're roll up your sleeve kind of people. Are you with me? But listen to me. Just because a leader can do something doesn't mean it's the best that they do something. Are you with me? Matter of fact, I say this to pastors all the time. If you want to keep your church small, just keep doing things that other people can do and you will succeed in keeping it small if that's your vision and that's your desire. Okay? They, in their desire to meet a physical need, a legitimate need. I think the need was legitimate. There were people that were dispersed or coming back. We know the story of the New Testament church that they were sharing. They were feeding people. And the disciples, who are probably not good cooks, that could have been the problem. Come on now, right? They didn't like the way that loaf of bread was made, whatever it was. They, instead of really seeking God, and instead of really being not distracted and hearing from God, because their heart, they wanted to serve people, they wanted to love people, they were waiting on tables, but by doing that, they were neglecting the Word of God. You know, Pastor Chris did something very important this morning. He pointed out the fact that there are people that come here early in the morning, and there are people sitting back here now. I just see legs under a table. I can't even see faces because there's, there's like screens in front of them. And they are serving in that way so that the word of God can go forward. Amen? And I would just say to all you who are serving, always remember that everything you're doing, has one central touch point, and it's that the word of God 
would go forward. Amen? Every time you serve, listen, every time you serve, you empower leadership. That's the message of Acts 6. Because it ends with verse 7, and then in chapter 7, we see the church become much more missional because now they have a plan. And that plan is helping people find their place on a wall to serve and allowing the apostles to do the spiritual warfare and do the leadership that's needed. And that's important to say because sometimes we just, you know, we just do something and we think it's insignificant, but it's very significant. Let me be real practical with you. Now, I had this message in my heart before yesterday, just so you know. But I was with Pastor Chris for a good bit yesterday, and I didn't keep track of how many phone calls he got, but it was a lot. Okay? Now, I don't know if this is preaching, but I think it's good meddling if it's not preaching, okay? <laughs> All right? Listen, I got to believe that some of those phone calls could have been had and handed by somebody else. That doesn't make him a bad guy. It doesn't make you a bad guy, all right? But what I'm saying to you is your part on the wall is significant. If we want to go to the place, the vision over the ministry of the tabernacle churches is significant. It's apostolic. It's evangelistic. It's prophetic. It's not just about your community. It launches from your community. And what you're doing is having a significant impact, not just here, but beyond. And if we see that big picture, I think it really empowers us. The problem here was the leaders. <laughs> yeah, because even though they had a good heart, they were doing things. You know, sometimes I ask pastors that are doing things, I'll say, do you like doing that? Eh, you know, well, it needs to get done. I'll say, are you any good at it? Eh, let me ask you a question. If you went to a heart doctor and you said, do you like doing this? He said, eh. are you any good at it? Eh, I think you're going to go to another doctor. Amen. But in the church, we do this all the time. You know, one of the funniest ones is counseling. I'll just, I'm just, maybe this is a prophetic word from somebody. Most pastors are not gifted counselors. Did you know that? Matter of fact, some of us are profoundly ungifted. Okay? Yeah, Caitlin got that. Thank you. You know, actually, there is pastors you should be tried for malpractice for counseling because they're just not good at it, all right? But we feel obligated to do it. But nine times out of ten, there's somebody that's better than that. That that's their gift. That's their ministry. That's their calling. That's how they can help. That's how they can be part of a team. And a lot of times we just don't understand that we really have something significant to say and to do. You know what's interesting about this passage? One of the things I think that's overlooked about, well, I'll just jump ahead of myself here a little bit. Eventually, part of the solution is, they say, okay, we're going to come up with seven guys, right? And we're going to put them in charge of this. Great solution. But what's even interesting is who they pick. They pick seven guys. Remember, the problem is with the Greek people, right? Not the Hebrew people. The problem is with the Greek people because they feel what? Overlooked. The apostles get Holy Ghost wisdom. And you know who they appoint? They appoint five Greeks of the seven. Five of those names are Greek people. And here's what I'm going to say to you. You speak a language 
that can connect to other people. You each come from different backgrounds and different histories and different spiritual experiences and different family backgrounds and different economic and vocational backgrounds. God has you custom made and tailored to speak a language, to minister to somebody that the apostles themselves couldn't do it. Why would you think your pastor could do it? Or any, any pastor could do it. Or any group of pastors could do it. It's a unique carved tool. There's probably somebody sitting here today that you you could have a greater conversation with over a cup of coffee that would impact their life greater than the next three messages they're going to hear. Because you can speak their language. I'm prophesying to some people here today. There's something in you to give to people. Don't downgrade that. That was part of God's Holy Ghost significant strategy to launch a church that would not just be Jerusalem-focused, that would become world-focused because they were healthy enough to release their leaders to seek God and to pray and to hear from the Lord in everything that they were doing. Hallelujah. Now, You know, the way you solve a problem is you ask the right question, right? If you ask the, you know, the old saying is if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. So the right question is what is broken here? Like, why are these people complaining? You know why the people complaining? Because you had the wrong people doing the serving. They had good hearts. They weren't afraid to work. I'm not suggesting that. Like I said, there's no prima donnas in our bunch, all right? And sometimes that works against us, all right? But I want you to see and understand the significance of this incredible history. Why is this narrative given? Why are there details? Why did he name seven people, five of which we never hear from again in the whole Bible, but their names are there because their names are Greek, and he's communicating to us a spiritual strategy about people touching people and speaking their own language. That is so powerful. We've got to grab it. We've got to understand it. God has put something in you to speak the language of somebody else to make you relatable in a way that's astounding. Now, let's look at what they looked at in these people. He, he gives them four things here, okay? Number one, he said they got to be of good reputation. So let's talk about what qualifies us to serve, all right? Because I think a lot of times we're discounting us. We, you know, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. And God's like, you know, that's not what I'm looking at. Number one, they had good reputation. They valued their testimony. They guarded their testimony. They had a good reputation. Doesn't say they had great gifting. Doesn't say that everybody knew who they were. They were charismatic leaders. They were good at public speaking. Doesn't say anything about that. It said... They had a good report. They guarded their testimony. The second thing it says is that they were full of the Holy Spirit. You know what? That means they were being filled to their capacity. It's very interesting to me that, you know, when Jesus would give illustrations, he would say things like he gave one talent to one person. He gave two talents to another person. He gave five talents to another person. Uh, You know, when I was in Bible college, I, I, I quit my first, I made it through the first year, and then I quit. And uh, one of the reasons I quit was I compared myself to all other students. I thought, I could never be in ministry. These people are so much more gifted. Like, even on the music thing, like, because like, you had to do choir. This is a true story. I'm going to tell you what happened. This is how incredible my gifting is. So you had to sing, you know, music class, and you had to sing. And so one day, uh, I get a, 
we, the, all the students have mailboxes. I get a slip from the disciplinary committee of the Bible school that they were requesting a meeting with me. Well, I know what that means. This Bible school is like hard line. I means I'm out. Like I did something. Like when you were called before the disciplinary meeting, you, you were on your way out the door. And so I walk into this room. I'm shaking, okay, because I'm going to sit among these spiritual giants. And uh, I sit down, and uh, the president of the school says to me, Mr. Tusi, I said, yes. He goes, uh, Mrs. Owens has, has accused you. She's the music teacher. She's from Wales, by the way. Very sophisticated, pearls, you know. I mean, I mean, just a sophisticated woman, you know, musical. I mean, he says, Mrs. Owens has accused you of insubordination. I said, what do you mean? He says, she says you are purposely disrupting her music class. And I said, honest, I'm that bad. I'm really that bad. <laughs> And one of the students, one of the, they knew my background a little bit, you know, and one of the instructors spoke up and says, we'll, we'll talk to Mrs. Owens. So I go back into class the next week, and I come to the front, and she said to me, you may have fooled them, but you're not fooling me. Nobody's that bad. <laughs> that's my musical pedigree. Okay? That, that's, that's where I come from. So what I'm saying is, you don't have to be a five-talent person. I'm not a five-talent person. I looked around at all those people, but bless God, whatever talents I've got, I'm going to use them, I'm going to steward them, I'm going to polish them, I'm going to value them, and I'm going to offer them to God in faith. I'm going to be all in in Jesus' name. That's all God is asking you to do, because he's all in on you. He gave his all for you. Don't discount what God has given you. Don't misunderstand the fact that every time you serve, you're empowering the vision. You're empowering the doctrine. You're empowering the word. That's what this story is about. This story is not about people having a food fight. This story is about the apostles were doing things they shouldn't have been doing, and there was a revelation that came to the church that there could be people in the congregation, it says that specifically, that could empower the whole move of God. And the church has been paralyzed by professionalism because we're like an audience. One, one guy said the church is like a football game. You know, 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest and 50,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. God has called us to work. Can I just meddle a little more while I'm at it since I have the microphone and it's hard for you to disagree with me? I can see those thoughts over your head though. So we've done transitional church. We've met in buildings. I mean, I, we met in hotels in Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Florida. We've met in VFW halls, fire halls, funeral homes, youth detention centers, community gymnasiums. I probably forgot a couple places over the years of planting churches of places we've met in. And sometimes we did that for several years. I know that's not good news, but we had to do it for several years. And I remember one time we were in that process, and we had, you know, people showing up early, two hours for service, you know, unloading vans, unloading trailers. We were meeting, let me tell you this story. Now, this, this hall, I mean, I know it's a tabernacle. It's not the tabernacle. It's a tabernacle. And uh, by our meeting standards, this is, this is great. I'm just sorry. But we were meeting, this is a true story, in a community hall. It was a, it was a gymnasium, and uh, we were renting it out. 
And the sound was so bad, and we were just a young church starting. We didn't have a lot of resources. We had a couple nurses, and they were bringing home the used egg crates from the, from the beds. That the, and we would spray paint them and stick them on the wall. Our youth room was a cooler, a meat cooler, that was disconnected. This is true. This is not a church growth strategy. The other Sunday school rooms were the men's shower room and the ladies' shower room. Can I just tell you, we had exponential growth in that building. Because there was such a heart to serve. We have so many people on the wall. And we just got to the place. I said to our team, I said, listen, I know you want to stop doing this, but please understand this. It's not so you can stop doing this so that you can do nothing. It's so that when you stop doing this, we get to do something even more significant. And what God is doing spiritually, I want you to hear me. I'm not making this up. What God is doing right now in your midst is he's building a different muscle of servanthood. He's exercising you in a way that you would have never chosen. And I'm not saying God is in this. I'm just saying he's a redeemer looking for a place to happen. Are you with me? So he redeems the circumstance we're in. And by the way, I know I'm, I'm sure I'm not speaking out of turn, but there's probably room to serve in that early Sunday morning thing. And if you talk to one of the people that are serving, I'm sure they can make room for you. Uh, you know, even if you couldn't do it every week just to do it. And it says, so they were full of the Holy Spirit. Just get full of your capacity. What talents do I have? What do you, can I make a Hellenistic hamburger? Good. Can I speak Greek? Good. Can I show up early? Good. What talent do I have to do that I can empower the ministry? And then it says wisdom. Wisdom, you know, the simple application is the application of knowledge. But it's, it's learned experience. There are people here, especially if you've got a little bit of mileage on you. You know, you're, you're more than eight years old, okay? You've learned some things in life. You can impart some things to people. It's the application. He said, I want to have some wisdom. It, in the root word, really means more of a discernment. And then I like this part, okay? And I think this is overlooked. Who we can put in charge. Who we can put in charge of this task. Not in charge of the vision, not in charge of people, in charge of this task. This is a job that needs to be done, and one of the primary responsibilities is a man or a woman, a group of people, that will say, I am the responsible party for this thing. When I work with churches, especially when they're just was with a new church coming into NRP, and I sat with their leaders, and I do this all the time. I just said, I want you to go around the room and tell me what you do. Like what, like, what is your function? If you're a leader in this church, what is your function? And I listen real close. And here's what I listen for. Often what they'll say is, well, I do this, or I help with this, or that. But when I hear someone say, this is my responsibility, I point that out. I said, there's your leader right there. Not somebody who's just doing something. But the person has a revelation. This is like I've been delegated. Like I want to take away the reproach of these people feeling overlooked. I want to make sure they get a full portion. That is my responsibility. That's what I do to empower this ministry. Let me ask you if you're serving, is it, are you taking the responsibility for it? You know, there's a great kingdom equation that we need to emphasize more. 
And that is simply this. There is no authority where there's no responsibility. If we want to be a church that has authority in our culture, then we have to take responsibility for things that are happening around us. If we want to be a church that takes authority in ministry, then we have to be the people that are more than spectators that take responsibility for what's happening right here. We just don't enjoy the benefits. Okay, is that good preaching? Thank you, Pastor Keith. It is. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, all eight of you. Amen. Okay. So taking authority for that, in Jesus' name, they took responsibility. And then we get to verse 7, and what does it say? Let's go to verse 7 and read it again. I want you to see it. What happens? What is the outcome of all this? The word of God kept on spreading. What kept spreading? People's personalities, their unique culture, the way they did it. No. What was, what was the cutting edge of what they did? The word of God kept on spreading. What was the next effect? And the number of disciples continued to increase, not just increase, but increase greatly. That's called exponential growth. That's not adding. Now we're multiplying. Amen? Does anybody here want to see that? Does anybody here want to see I want to see that in Jesus' name. Okay? Continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And watch this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So even the religious people were being drawn in and there was a conversion. This narrative is given to show us something. That we face some of the same obstacles. It might not be over food, but it's over our culture. It's over our taste. It's over not being able to speak the same language with somebody. It's coming from a different background and wanting it our way. Or, wanting it, or thinking our way is the only way. But having such a submission to a greater vision that we're willing to contribute to that and understand spiritually what's happening and get a revelation that every time we do an act of service, whatever it is, we're the guy that returns the call. We're the guy that follows up on that person. We're the gal that reaches out to somebody, whatever it may be. We're the person that shows up early. We're the person that stays late. We're the person that opens up our home. Every time we're doing that, what we've just done is we've just pushed the word. We've just pushed the word. We've just given our leaders, especially our senior pastor, because that's his responsibility, right? It's his responsibility. Think about this. That responsibility to him to bring the word is unique to everybody else. That's his, no matter who's preaching, it's his responsibility to make sure that that happens. And one of the reasons, my dear friends, the church in America is overall weak is because we've neglected one of the very foundational teachings in the New Testament, okay? And we want our pastors to do everything and be everything. And so glad for men of God like this who have that kind of heart, but that doesn't make it the right thing to do. Can I have an amen? We have to see that. You would not go to a doctor who, d who wasn't good at what they did just because it needed to be done. At least I wouldn't go. I wouldn't even drive you, actually. Okay? That's the place we have to be. That's the narrative here. That's the history there. So that the word of God can grow. So let me ask you this. What talent has God given you? Are you at capacity on that talent? Are you polishing that talent? Are you using that talent? 
Is there something you know that, that, that the world gets benefit out on your, on your vocation or your training or your education or your family history that's not been translated into the kingdom to say, hey, you know, I got this talent. I could serve in this way. I could help in this way. When you do that, you're not putting yourself forward. You're putting the word of God forward. He said, look, I, I got to find some guys to do this. It's not right that we're neglecting the word of God. The church is weak overall because the word of God gets neglected. Let's not be that church. Let's not be party to that. Matter of fact, let's help equip that the flowing of the word is so powerful that we know that when Pastor Chris, whoever else he puts hands on to stand up here and speak the word, he's been fully prepared. They're not distracted. They're in a flow. They're hearing from God. They're speaking things that need to equip us so that we can be the people God's called us to be. Does that sound reasonable? Aren't you glad God didn't just give us a story, but he told us literally how it happened? Now, let me just backtrack a minute before I close here. I want to just go back to the overlook part, okay? Because I said that's a feeling, not a fact. I'm not saying there wasn't a fact attached, attached to it. I wasn't there. And there probably was. There probably was something going on with the food. That, that's our guess. But that's not what this chapter really talks about. That's what we think it talks about when we read it real quick. I want to challenge you on that fact. To understand that he is Elohim Shama, the God who sees. And once you have an understanding in your heart, a personal revelation, a take it by faith because the Bible says so that you are his kid and he is your father. And you allow him to begin to walk you out of, for lack of a better word, I'll say insecurities or intimidations or condemnations or whatever thing that would paralyze you. That's key to this whole thing. So I've spent a lot of time talking about a lot of practical stuff here. But I want to just double back to that spiritual part. And I want you to stand up with me this morning, if you would, please. <clears throat> 